a visit to Longbourn. Before I begin, I have to say that there's something uniquely intimidating about writing commentary on this particular novel, so I thought I'd confess my apprehensions from the start and share how I intend to manage them. My impression is that those of you following along on this journey fall roughly into two very disparate categories. There are those who feel a deep and proprietorial attachment to this novel. For you, rereading it is something like paying a visit to family. You feel an intensity of kinship with some of the characters and contempt for others, and you have strong opinions about who in the cinematic versions played the characters well and why. Then there are those of you who, to quote one of our readers, finish the first five chapters and say, that was a lot of words for not much happening. I know a lot of people who have tried this novel and then tossed it aside, feeling uncomprehending of what all the fuss is about. And I'm writing to both of you. My plan is to take the approach I always do and read with me. I'll relate to you the essence of my experience reading the novel. In the process, I will hope to help sharpen your observations, or clarify your understanding, or heighten your enjoyment, or share in your enthusiasm— no matter what the starting point of your perspective. Consider my commentary the opening of a conversation, where I say, here's what I see, here's what I think, here's what I love, and in doing so, stimulate your own thoughts on the subject. Though I confess to the truth of a lot of words for not much happening, I myself read these opening chapters with utter delight. So let me explain my experience of them. Our story is told by an omniscient narrator, but certainly not an impartial, unopinionated one. Reading these first few chapters, I felt as if I had been invited into Longbourn by some astute, clever companion to spy on its inhabitants while she—I say she because I can't think of the voice as anything but Austin herself—whispers witty observations in my ear. There's something gratifying to the ego in the feeling that I, the reader, am treated as a worthy recipient of her sardonic, sideline commentary, suggesting that I, unlike most of the objects of her observations, have the intelligence and sophistication to be in on the joke. Together, we share in our amusement over the unmitigated foolishness of Mrs. Bennet, a nervous woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper— whose only occupation was to see her daughters married, and whose only solace is society and gossip. Among other failings too numerous to name, Mrs. Bennet wearies her husband with her incessant blathering, treats all the world as if it ought to revolve around her own trivial ambitions, and practices a patently false modesty to cover up her own petty variety of the pride she is so quick to condemn in others. I think the Mrs. Bennet moment that most made me shake my head and roll my eyes in wry amusement was her comment to Charlotte Lucas that she thought she had heard something, somewhere, about Mr. Bingley admiring Jane to Mr. Robinson, and then the revelation that it was Charlotte herself who told her the story, and this was only a thinly veiled demand that she repeat it. We, again, not meaning to speak for you, but for my own relationship with the narrator, feel something of a kinship with Mr. Bennet, the man of quick parts, sarcastic humor, reserve, and caprice, who finds far more pleasure in a book than a ball. We watch with amusement all his good-humored set-downs of the silly people who surround him, 
and when he calls Lizzie his favorite and the only one with any sense, we are primed to like her too. It is hard to choose, but I think my favorite characteristic Mr. Bennett moment was his response to his wife's gratuitously detailed account of all Mr. Bingley's dances. Quote, If he had had any compassion for me, he would not have danced half so much. For God's sake, say no more of his partners. Oh, that he had sprained his ankle in the first dance. Unquote. Despite, or perhaps because of, her goodness, we feel a certain superiority to the sweet and supremely beautiful Jane, because we know that no one with any real sense could fail to see the faults in her fellow man. It is an affectionate, even protective superiority, because Jane's benevolence of outlook, generosity of spirit, and modesty of self-opinion are maintained with utter earnestness. She is content to always give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but her more astute and sensible sister Lizzie believes it is a benefit they don't often deserve. I love seeing Jane through Lizzie's adoring eyes, such as when she says, quote, Affectation of candor is common enough. One meets with it everywhere. But to be candid without ostentation or design, to take the good of everybody's character and make it still better and say nothing of the bad belongs to you alone, unquote. Jane does indeed seem a suitable companion to the good-looking, gentlemanlike, and always affable Mr. Bingley, who, like Jane, is known for the easiness, openness, and ductility of his temper. He is eminently likable, but we feel the sort of affection for him that is accompanied by a little pat on the head. Though perfectly amiable, he cannot be called clever, and he depends on his friend Darcy's good judgment. But whatever his limitations, it is impossible not to love the lack of condescension and the unreservedness of his enthusiasm for his Netherfield neighbors, and especially for Jane, of whom he says he could not conceive of an angel more beautiful. The Bennet sisters Catherine and Lydia so far have not earned much of our attention, since they have little identity outside their desperate determination never to be without a partner for the dance. But we can't help the exchange of whispered remarks and knowing looks about Mary, whose character is so transparent from the start. When Mr. Bennet dryly calls her a lady of deep reflection, who reads great books and makes extracts, we have our first glimpse of this straight-laced, bookish, insipid, and socially awkward girl, the only plain one among her sisters. We see her soul bared again when, among the idle gossip about the pride of Mr. Darcy, she inserts a dispassionate mini-discourse on the nature of vanity and pride. Lizzie is the one we want to call our friend, the one for whom we really came calling. We don't know much about her, but we still know her soul by the fact that she sees much of what we see, enough that we feel an indignation over Mr. Darcy's slight. She has an amused detachment from the silliness that surrounds her, and it comes out in the subtleties of her expression. I loved her quip to Jane that she gives her leave to like Bingley, since she's liked many a stupider person. And her promise to her mother that she would never dance with Darcy seemed to me to contain a wry, amusedly self-deprecating acknowledgement of the fact that the decision wasn't really hers. And finally, there's Mr. Darcy. But let's give him a commentary of his own.